hey, go ahead and take a seat. Thanks for being here this morning. Listen, right now, I feel like every Sunday that I get to be with you is a blessing and a joy because, yeah, I don't know when that time's going to come, when this baby's going to make its way into this world and we are going to um, spend some time as a family. So I'm grateful. I'm grateful to be here and to be in 2 Timothy 3 again this morning. So if you have a Bible, grab that. If you don't, they'll be on the screen. So, um, 2 Timothy 3, <coughs> chapter, uh, verse 10, all right? In 2016, over 3 million people watched two BuzzFeed reporters put rubber bands around a watermelon for 45 minutes, okay? Wrap your minds around this. Over 3 million people got sucked in to a wormhole of watching BuzzFeed reporters put rubber bands around a watermelon until it burst. People said they don't know how this happened. They just couldn't stop watching. They were like, I saw it online and it just got me and I watched and I watched and I watched in suspense of a whole lot of nothing. Maybe you've been there before. It happens to me all the time. One second, I'm sitting there thinking I need a mental break. Three hours later, after I'm done watching Steve Harvey reels on my phone, I'm like, what just happened to my life? <laughs> right? Distraction is one of the main detractors of reaching most of our goals or our destination in life. And there's an entire world out there trying to sell you distraction. Think about it. None of us wake up in the morning starting our days thinking, oh, I hope that I'm super unproductive today. I hope that I waste my best hours of my day on social media looking at the next controversy or conspiracy theory or going down the wormhole of just looking at the comments that people make about Tim Keller for 400 hours a day. None of us wake up in the morning thinking, I know what I'm gonna do today. <clears throat> I'm gonna spend all of my day answering emails, endless amounts of emails until I get to the point in the day because I, I just, I'm so good at answering emails that you, you email me back. And we do this all day long until my day ends and I've done absolutely nothing, right? Like sometimes we wake up and we think I'm just going to put a little duct tape on it and everything's going to be okay. I'm just going to distract myself from the realities of life. The only problem is, the only problem is it's not okay. And the more you fake it, the more you distract yourself from the reality of life, the more you duct tape it on well, the worse it gets. So here's the deal. If you find yourself ever vegging out on hours of Netflix, scrolling through Instagram endlessly, it might just be a huge red flag that there is a distraction problem subconsciously going on and you're hiding yourself from it. <clears throat> Do you want to know what the antidote to distraction is? Authenticity. An authentic life is the antidote to a distracted life. It's authenticity that allows you to flourish as the person of God, as he's made you to be, it's an authentic life that enters in and invests deeply where God has you in the moment. It's an authentic life that allows you to live on, pur on purpose. See, authenticity is the road that leads to the destination that all of us want to be on. Here it is. Your destination is set by your direction. Where you decide to point your life will determine where you'll go. I know that's not rocket science, but if I decide that I want to go to Jacksonville, Florida today, and I just get on I-95 going north, I don't care how much I want to get to Jacksonville, Florida, I'm not getting there. I'm getting to this terrible city filled with people called New York that none of us actually want to be in. Today, I want to show you 
I want to show you how to make a different direction for your life, something meaningful, and I want to challenge all of us not to get distracted, but to stay the course knowing that as we point ourselves in this direction, what you'll find is the destination is good. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 10, here's what Paul says. You, however, he's talking to Timothy, <coughs> have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. You remember last week, if you were here, where Paul took Timothy and he told them, he told them what ungodly leaders look like. He says ungodliness masks itself like godliness, and yet it's not there. It, it deprives the power of God out of, it sucks it out of the air that all of us breathe. So Paul today wants to show you what a contrasting view or a godly life looks like. So he's setting up an archetype example of what his life looks like compared to what ungodly people's lives look like, and he's showing you that the direction or the destination of your life is challenged or changed by what you do. So again, write this down, your life will always prove your beliefs. This is what Paul's point is, okay? You can say all you want, and yet if your life doesn't match what you believe, it doesn't really matter what you say. You can fake it all day long, but in the long run, the world will know what you believe by how you act. I think that's the point, and I think, honestly, that's why community matters so much. When you live in community, God uses the people around you to not only shape or influence your beliefs, but he actually uses it to reveal what you actually believe. This is what Paul means when I underline the phrase for you, you, however, have followed. It actually, in Greek, it's a significant phrase. He's saying something like, the only way that you'll know that I have an authentic life is because we live together or you followed me. It's an intimate way of saying that the relationship, the deep relationship that they had was only formed through intentionality and proximity. It's community. And Paul didn't have to get up on a stage and tell Timothy what he believed. He says, Timothy, my life has painted a picture for you what I believe. Because Paul and Timothy spent so much time together, it showed him what an authentic Christian life looks like. Y'all, true life change or true life-changing community only happens when we spend time together. It doesn't happen when we show up at church on Sunday mornings and never spend any time together and we compartmentalize our lives. It doesn't even happen when you show up to a small group and then you never talk to each other until the next week. Listen, discipleship happens as you go. Here's what I mean. Discipleship isn't about, and this is what I was taught, I was taught discipleship's about going, having a cup of coffee together, spending an hour, opening up your Bible and reading it. That's not a bad thing, but that's not where discipleship happens. There's a better way. I remember um, when we lived in Durham, North Carolina, <clears throat> there was a guy who asked me to disciple him. And I'm sitting there thinking, I don't know what you think discipleship is, but here's what I want you to do is I want you to show up on Friday morning at the Museum of Life and Science, and I'm going to take my kids to go play and we'll talk there. So he shows up there, he hangs out, he's kind of confused because we don't open up the Bible, we don't talk about a whole lot, and I'm like, hey, come, come over tomorrow, I've got to go grocery shopping, why don't you tag along and we'll do that, and we did that, and then I was like, show up to church a little early and let's hang out, let's set up together, and he did that, and we talked and we talked, and he watched, he watched how my family lived life together, he would show up for dinner at our house, and we did this for about a year as he watched how the gospel influenced my parenting. 
how generosity changed the way that we spent money, and how Jesus made me a different kind of husband and a dad. At the end of that year, he graduated from Duke University, and he decided that he was going to go to med school at Wake Forest, and he comes to me and he says, Billy, when we first started out on this journey, I thought, you're crazy. And honestly, this has been the most impactful year of my life. And you know what? We never did a formal Bible study. What we did is we opened up the Bible as we, go, as we went, and I showed him how it applied to every sphere of our life. What happened, happened as we did life together. The thing that made Paul's ministry example so powerful to Timothy is that Timothy experienced the power of God through Paul's life. Paul didn't have to sit him down and tell him what he believed. He never had to have a conversation about trusting God when life fell apart. You know why? Because life fell apart often for Paul, and Timothy was standing right next to him, and he experienced the power of God in Paul's life as it happened. Guys, the most powerful thing you can do with your life is to bring people along with you as you experience real life in community, and you let the gospel shape it. You let people see what it's like when you fight with your spouse, and then you apologize. I'm just telling you, that is not normal in today's world. We tend to just suck it up, and we don't do anything about it. But you know how powerful it is when you can walk up to your kids of all people and say, hey, I messed this one up, and I'm really sorry. You let people see your struggle that you have, and you don't fake it. And that's not easy. I'm, I'm coming from a guy who is walking through what I think might be the biggest struggle I've gone through in my adult life. Sometimes I just want you to feel like I, we've got this. Like I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps, and it's going to be easy. But I'll just give you a real example of that. I left the hospital the other day, and it was the hardest moment of my life, and I had to walk into Clay and Amy's house, and I just couldn't keep it together. And I just, I, I mean, I'm just telling, that's powerful stuff, because in that moment of my vulnerability, I think that our relationship went to a deeper level. I think they got to see that life is hard, and yet, at the same time, we're still going to follow Jesus through it. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And the best leaders, here's what leaders do. <clears throat> the best leaders simply follow Jesus and bring people along with them as they go. So here's the deal. Paul is setting up a contrast of what fake godliness looks like and what real godliness looks like, and he's setting a trajectory for the direction of our lives. And the main thing he does is he says that the life that you live will reveal the faith that you believe. Here it is. Fake godliness looks really good on the outside. And it always, always takes advantage of the weak and the vulnerable. That's what Paul showed us last week. It always jockeys for positions of power, and it always climbs into the seat of judgment to look down on other people. Thank you, man. That's what it does. That's how it reveals itself. At the end of the day, fake godliness looks like the real deal, but it's not about service. It's about being served. It's about letting everybody else around you lift you up. It's about patting yourself on the back. It's not about humbly lifting others up. It's about being right. At the end of the day, that's what fake godliness looks like. Guys, if our doctrine does not compel us to lay down our rights for the sake of lifting other people up, we miss the point of real godliness. I know I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but I'm just going to say it anyway because that's what I do. Over the last two years, I watched a lot of people die on a lot of hills and, and, and elevate themselves even if they were right. For the sake of other people. They did that. 
Listen, guys, if you care way more about buzzwords like CRT than you do about laying down your rights to lift other people up, you might be missing the forest through the trees. And I, I know, I know that these are complicated matters that you might have legitimate concerns about, that might have politically, political ramifications or whatnot. I, don't, I just don't care. Do you see people through the process of all the stuff going on? Or do you have to put yourself ahead and your rights and your needs ahead? Because if you do, I just don't think you get it. At the end of the day, the Christian life is about humbly lifting people up and bringing them closer to Jesus so that you can serve them. It's about, it's about parsing through the language and peeling back the layers so that you can see people and love them. It's about seeing the forest through the trees. I want you to hear me say this. Listen, your identity is far greater than the caricature that anybody in this world gives you. And the church is there to raise up and make bigger your identity. The church is there to tell you and show you that you are a child of God. You are not reduced down to whatever society says about you. Did you know that the most stated command in the Bible, you, you might not know this, is to care for the poor and those who are vulnerable. Y'all, if there is a language of the Bible, it is that. It is over and over and over again. You see, fake godliness is about gaining a following, and real godliness is about elevating Jesus as you fade into the background. It's about making Jesus famous. Let me show you three things that Paul says in this one verse that display the character of real godliness. By the way, that's the big idea. Fake godliness robs God of his power, and real godliness unleashes God's power in the world. If you want to know what God's evangelistic strategy is to change the world, it is you embodying the gospel, putting yourself down in order to raise other people up. It is so powerful because nobody does it. That's why history remembers people like Martin Luther King Jr. and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. History rem remembers people who are willing to lay down their lives so that other people can get lifted up. That's why, again, no matter what you think about the, the, the country Ukraine, no matter what you think about President Zelensky's past, all of us look at him as a hero because he's laying down himself in order to lift people up. That's the model of what God wants for his people. When the Christian life is about humbly laying down your rights to lift others up, when it's about serving instead of being served, when it's metaphorically about washing the feet of your community and serving the people around you, there's such an impact because nobody does this. Nobody puts we before me. You get that. Nobody sacrifices so that people who don't deserve it get grace. But that's the gospel. At its nutshell, the gospel is Jesus gave up his life and his rights to a group of people who don't deserve it. He laid down his life to give you life. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that you wouldn't have to. Y'all, the most powerful thing that we can do with our lives is to emulate Jesus in this world. Check it out. You, however, Paul says, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. There are three things that you can boil down in this statement, and here they are. Number one, his teaching. Number two, his character. And number three, his purpose. So starting with number one, his teaching. Notice this. Notice that Paul says you followed my teaching. Let me just ask you, let me just ask you, what destination is your teaching leading other people to? 
When people look at the wisdom that you give them, is it leading them towards Jesus or is it leading them towards a worldly success? Y'all, one of the things that has happened in the church that I think is one of the greatest lies and it's devastating is this, that I am the only professional Christian in this room. That's a lie. It, it, that I'm the only one that's supposed to speak and teach, and I'm the only one that's supposed to know the Bible, and I'm the one that's supposed to go to seminary and get it all right. Do you realize that when you believe or buy into that lie that I am the teacher, you rob God of his multiplying power of the gospel in the world? Think about it. When the 150 people or so that are going to show up in this room today are equipped and empowered by the Spirit of God that lives inside of you, and they go out into their spheres of life and they teach the gospel, everything changes. Because you don't just bring people to come and see me, you take what's already in you and you take it to the world. Or, or you can just invite people to come hear me speak. I'm just telling you God's plan A is you. I'm not God's plan A. My job, according to Ephesians 4, is not to do the work of ministry. My job is to train and equip us to take the gospel to our city and to transform it for the sake of the gospel. That's why we say around here, the church is an army and not an audience. And when we act like it, we can change the world. You see, there are three main, uh, if you will, ways that I see churches function in the world today. Some of them, the first way is churches function like a cruise ship, right? Like, come and see our six flags over Jesus. Everything is perfect here. We won't offend you, and you can just show up, and we'll give you everything you've ever wanted. Your job is to show up, do nothing, but complain. That's what cruise ship churches look like. Or you have battleship churches. Matter of fact, I think this is what most churches are. Most churches are battleship churches. The church fights the battle. You just give your money to our budget. We will create the programs. We'll hire the professionals to do it, and we'll go fight the battles for you. You just show up and support us as we do it. Matter of fact, when you come here, I'll beat up your friends a little bit. I'll make them feel bad about themselves, make them feel like they're sinners. They'll go home. They'll need Jesus a little more. They'll come back, and we'll do it all again next week. Our church is designed to be like an aircraft carrier. See, aircraft carriers don't fight the battles. They get close to the battle, and then they launch the jet off into the battle to go fight it. That's what city church is. Every Sunday, whenever we come into this room, I view city church as a training ground to bring you close to the battle and then send you back out. That's why we end our gatherings by saying you are sent, equipped with the gospel. <clears throat> Listen, you are the tip of the spear of the gospel. The influence that you have around non-Christians is so much greater than I ever will. Do you realize I don't get invited to the party? I'm just telling you, in my neighborhood, I'm that awkward guy. I watch everybody walking across the street. I'm like, I'd like to be over there. <laughs> but trust me, it's strategic. The pastor doesn't get invited. I get it. You realize that everybody I spend all day with are Christians. M maybe Clayton's not. I don't know. <laughs> the jury's still out. But I spend, my, I spend my life around Jesus followers. You spend your life around most people that are not. So do you think that I'm the most strategic person to change the city with the gospel? No, you are. I think that we've been bought the lie, sold the lie, that you don't have the power to change this world, and you do. Because the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead lives inside of you. So what are you teaching people? Here's my next question. Is what you are teaching worth following? Is what you are teaching worth following? 
which ultimately leads to this question, who are you teaching? Notice that Paul had a Timothy. You notice that? He had someone who he was pouring his life into. Guys, look around this room. I realize we're the 9 o'clock and disproportionate amount of people go to the 1045, but there's still a ton of people in this room that are young with young families and young kids. Some of you who are a little seasoned in life, right? Amen. You know, and like the kids at my lacrosse, I always wear a hat to lacrosse practice, and one day I didn't, and this girl says, you have ice cream there. Like, like, what the heck does that mean, kid? You know, it's swirled with, like, white stuff in it. Thanks. Some of you who have that, or you have the problem I don't want to have, you don't have ice cream hair, right? You have no hair. So those happen. That's a function of reality. I get that. But some of you, as you look around, what if you invested in us? What if you did that? See, some of you need to walk alongside of us to help ensure that the direction of our lives are pointed in the right way. Because you've been down that road a little longer. And listen to me. If you don't, somebody else will. And they will point you in a direction that might be going somewhere else. God has designed the thing to be a multi-generational family where the grandparents in the faith are spending time with the kids in the faith to raise up the next generation in the Christian life. By the way, that was Paul's main concern with the book of 2 Timothy. Paul wanted to leave a legacy in Timothy as he poured his life into him so that the trajectory of the church continued on in a healthy way. That was the model. Number two is character. See, the major difference between Paul and the false teachers was that Paul was actually godly. His life spoke loudly that what he taught, he believed. I've told you this before. One day when I die, I know this might sound morbid, but I hope you don't remember me. I hope that you remember Jesus through me. I think it was Count Zinfendorf, a guy who started the Moravian movement, on his tombstone, it said, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That's what it actually says on his tombstone. I hope that's what happens in my life. I hope that when you think of me, you think that guy loved Jesus, and I might not have believed what he believed, but I believe that he believed what he believed. I believe that his life was that way. I'm convinced that the key to unleashing the power of God in this world is letting our lives match our doctrine. See, there's no greater example of this than Paul. Paul, the brother, was sitting in prison awaiting his execution, and he finishes well. I know a lot of people that began really well. They began, they were on fire for Jesus. They had their WWJD bracelets. You know what I mean? They had a fish on the back of their car. They never did anything wrong, but they looked on everybody who did. And those same people, they got kicked in the teeth a few times. They took off their purity ring and they started deconstructing their faith. Now, the measure of a godliness isn't how you start, it's how you finish. A couple weeks ago, as some of you guys know, I, I, I ran the Brooklyn Marathon, and um, the human body's not made for running that far, by the way. I don't, I don't know if you knew this. Somebody should have told me this ahead of time, but the guy who ran the first marathon actually died after he got done. That would have been good information to know before I did this to myself. I got to mile 17, um, and I'm on this divided highway. Like, it was literally the interstate that they shut down the lane on, and um, I, my legs started cramping so bad I couldn't walk. And on this divided highway, there were cones that separated. You had to run six miles down and six miles back. 
And I sat there for a second, and everything in me wanted to quit and just turn around, just cheat. I'm, like, I had this moment, this moment where I'm sitting there looking at the cones and looking at people going this way, and I was like, I want to do that, but that's not the story I want to tell to my kids. That's not the story I want my life to have. And then I thought for a second, yeah, but you've got like eight more miles to go. <laughs> so I didn't do it. I limped, and I finished. Y'all, the Christian life is about limping past the finish line and hearing Jesus say, well done. Well done. I don't want, I don't want my life to be about doing things well at the beginning and then turning around at the 17th mile of my life. I don't want to lose my character because I did something I'd regret. That's, that's, by the way, why I have become, in the last three weeks, the biggest NBA fan on the planet. You know why? Can I tell you why? Because I'm at home alone at night, and I want my character to be solid so I don't turn on anything besides ESPN and basketball. Because I know what my life will be like. So I become the biggest NBA fan on the planet because I want to have godly character. See, I don't know about you, but I want to end my life limping across the finish lines into the, into the arms of Jesus and worshiping him with every breath that I have. I want to leave behind a family that I love and a wife that I was fully committed to and faithful to. I want to leave behind a church family that I loved and that are multiplying itself all around the world. Guys, there's nothing more powerful than getting to the fourth quarter of your life and continuing to fan into flame the spirit of God that has been put inside of you. Everything in the world, Everything in the world says you should work really, really hard to phone it in in your later years. And I'm just telling you, I just don't think that that's God's plan for you. I think your later years or your next season of life might be the most strategic season of your life because you have more time and more resources than you've ever had. So instead of hanging out on the golf course, what if you invested back into the kingdom of God? There's nothing more powerful than that. What if God's plan for you is to leverage your next years to finish well? So he makes you wildly successful. We live in one of the most successful, successfully driven places on earth. And he pours continually into you so that you can pour continually into the next generation and you can take your generosity to fuel the mission of the church. And side note, for some of you that are young like me, you don't have to wait until your later years to start doing that. God has gifted you significantly now. You have something to offer now. See, Paul finished well. Honestly, he didn't start well. You know the story of Paul, he was a terrorist named Saul who was out to persecute the church, and yet at the same time, God redeemed his life. See, Paul is a picture of God's grace. It doesn't matter how you started, it matters how you finish. Maybe you're sitting in here today and you're like, yeah, but Billy, you don't know my life. You don't know what I've done. You're right, I don't, but I know what Jesus did. I know that he gave up his life for you, and that gives you a blank check to start over. I know that Paul's life was a train wreck and God redeemed it and I don't think you've ever done anything quite as bad as he has done. If you have, go tell Clayton. I don't want to know about it. The beauty of the gospel is this. It's never too late to change the direction of your life and finish well. That's the point. Our lives and our teaching need to match and as they match, they make an impact in the world. Listen, when the gospel is the core of who you are, it will change the way that you live, and that's where the power of God becomes unleashed. Number three, his purpose. Ultimately, ultimately, the destination of Paul's life determined the direction. He knew his purpose. 
<clears throat> he knew where he was headed, and it set his life on the right direction. Listen, leadership, again, is simply following Jesus and bringing people along with you. That's what Paul did. Paul followed Jesus. The main goal of his life was to worship Jesus, and everything he did was to point to Jesus. And by the way, can I just tell you, that's costly. At the end of the day, it's costly, but it makes a huge impact on the world. Purpose sets a direction that leads to a destination. Here's the point. Paul is following, or people are following you somewhere. People are following you somewhere. So my question is, where are people following you? Where are you taking them? The way you determine that question is to ask yourself, what is your ultimate life's purpose? Is it to retire and leave a big nest egg to your family? Is it to raise good human beings? Is it to accomplish climbing the corporate ladder? Listen, I, I gave you those examples because none of those in and of themselves are bad. I think we live in a society that likes to poo-poo on success. There's nothing wrong with that. I think God gave you gifts and you should be as wildly successful as you can. Just leverage that for the kingdom of God. At the end of the day, you have to ask yourself, what is your ultimate aim in life? Here's Paul's verse 11. He says, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Paul's point is, Timothy, you watched. You watched me in my darkest hour. You watched me go through suffering and stay faithful. Can I just say there's nothing, nothing more powerful than bringing people along as you walk with Jesus faithfully in your darkest hour, in your struggle, and you don't lose your faith? I love how Paul puts this together. Look at the end of verse 10 and end of verse 11. My steadfastness, he says. You see, he puts steadfastness right next to persecutions and sufferings. I don't think that's on accident. He's showing you that he persevered through them all. There is something so powerful that happens as you sit in the pain of your situation for a while. I think that God does good things there. Hard lessons are learned, but there's good things that happen there. Right now, right now, I'm just being vulnerable with you. This, in this season of my life, I feel like God is teaching me some really hard lessons. He's teaching me to enjoy every moment that we have and to be patient. The last couple weeks, have been the hardest moments of our life. The roller coaster ride of emotions that I've had to walk through with my kids and my wife has made me feel like I'm helpless and all I can do is lean into God. Y'all, the, the moment that I have to pry my son out of my wife's arms as he's kicking and screaming and yelling at me because he just wants mommy, but she has to go after our 45-minute visit. And I had to pull him into the car and just hold him and say, it's going to be okay, buddy. As he's trying to pry the door open and run back out, and I'm trying to buckle him up, and everybody's looking at us in the parking lot as he's kicking and screaming in his car seat, and I'm having to hold him down and put him in there. And then rinse, repeat, and do it again the next day. Every single day of our life, that's what it feels like. As we show up to the hospital, and as it becomes the best 45 minutes, and then the worst three hours afterwards of my life. You know what God's doing through that? He's teaching me a deep sense of love for my kids and patience with them in ways that I've never had before. I'm a type A go-getter personality, and I don't have a whole lot of time for people's stuff, which is a bad profession as a pastor. <laughs> so I'm kind of like a suck it up kind of guy, but God has been sitting there teaching me it's going to be okay. And you know what the biggest thing is? Like in my helplessness, 
as I'm patient with my kids in their situations, I often feel like that's how God is with me. As he's prying me out of situations like the one we're in right now, that I'm sitting there kicking and screaming at God, saying, I don't know why you're doing this. And he's reminding me, you might not know why, but I promise you it's for your good. That's what I feel like I'm doing with my son. As I'm sitting there in that moment and I'm ruining his day, I'm sitting there saying, buddy, you don't understand this, but the best place your mommy can be is right where she's at. And you may never understand this in your four-year-old mind. And yet, it's the best thing I can do for you. That's what God is teaching me. That there are reasons that I may not ever understand, and yet, as I walk through that pain with my family, he humbles me, he makes me more patient, and I lean into him. See, sometimes, sometimes it takes God allowing us to experience deep pain to understand the steadfastness of God in our situation. Like J.R. Packer said, which is like the coolest quote ever to quote until you actually have to live it, God can't use a man greatly until he's hurt him deeply. It's true. See, sometimes it takes deep pain to really start to appreciate the things that we take for granted. I really believe that in these moments, like this space, it's where God is shaping you to make you the most resilient type of people that he can ultimately use for ministry for a lifetime. It's, it's always the desert moments. Um, I, I heard a quote by John Bunyan last night. Uh, it said that a man who is so low can never fall. I love that. I think that that's the point. I'm just telling you, someone, someone needs to experience what you're going through right now so that they can see God in you, and it's not easy. I know a lot of you are going through hard stuff right now. That is the joy of being your pastor is I know the burdens that you carry. The problem that I see with some of you, if I can just be blunt, is that you carry them alone, which means that you rob all of us of experiencing God through you. What we need is vulnerability because sometimes God just throws you bag parts. But if your purpose and your direction is set on Jesus, you actually bring people along with you as you open up about those things. See, Paul, again, didn't have to get on a stage to show Timothy that he was faithful. His life spoke louder than the ungodly people's words. Timothy went on these missionary journeys with Paul, and he was beat so badly that he almost died. He watched Paul continue to sacrifice as he planted churches and shared the gospel. He saw how much Paul's life cost him, and at the end of it, he saw the impact that the gospel made, not just on Paul, but as Paul spent his life lifting Jesus up, how it made it on all the people around him. By the way, those three cities that Paul mentions, they're the cities that are closest to where Timothy grew up. I think there's something significant about that. I think Paul is trying to draw a line for Timothy to say that the things that he went through brought the gospel to the people that he loved. And because of his faithfulness, God used him. Now, even Timothy, you are a Christ follower. You see, walking with Jesus through your suffering can make life-changing impacts on the people around you if you will let it. And at the end of it all, at the end of it all, maybe the most encouraging thing that Paul says is this. Yet, from them all, the Lord rescued me. In some strange way, some strange way, that's what gives us hope. Listen, you're not the only one going through what you're going through. You're not. See, I don't know about you, but I need to hear that. I need to hear, you're not that special. Because guys, sometimes I get so down because I'm like, why am I the only one going through this stuff? Like nobody else struggles the way that we do. Everybody else's kids are perfect. 
right? They, they have more money than they know what to do with. They go on vacation all the time. They never fight. They love each other. Y'all, that's just a lie. You're not the only ones. You know what the amazing thing about the human experience is? It's common. We're all dealing with the same stuff. We all get disappointed, right? We all feel insignificant. We all battle contentment issues. We all want more. And if you are in the Christian life, you are going to get rejected too. But God will rescue you. See, that's the hope. At the end of it all, God will rescue you. And in the middle, you can lean into him and lean into each other because we all have a common experience. Don't believe the lie that you are the only one. That lie, that lie leaves you trapped in your self-pity of despair. It isolates you from knowing who you are. And then it's in those gardens of isolation that mutant things grow. Do you know why Paul's example matters? Because it gives you confidence that God is in the middle of the mess. So here's the deal. Living in community is the best way to know that you are not alone. Because as you live in community and you know that you're not alone, what you find is that everybody else is going through the same stuff. You're not the only one. And ultimately, God will deliver you. By the way, just so I'm careful here, that deliverance, listen to me, it may not be what you want. And it may not happen in this life. The prosperity gospel tells you that everything's going to go just the way that you want it to go. But the hope of the gospel is, ultimately, ultimately God will deliver you. That that was our greatest hope. Do you know how I know this? This same person who makes this statement is sitting in prison awaiting his execution. And he gets executed. But at the end of all of it, the prize was not his freedom. The prize was Jesus and because of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, he got that prize. He finished that race limping, and he heard, well done. See, in Christ, listen, this life is the worst it will ever get. But if you're not in Christ, it's kind of the best it will ever get. Verse 12. Indeed, Paul says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Y'all, I don't have a whole lot of time to lie to you. The Christian life's not easy. And if you signed up for butterflies and rainbows and unicorns, I, you might just want to check out now. Because that's not how it works. Again, the most tragic lie that has happened in maybe American Christianity is that we've been sold a lie that if you follow Jesus, everything else is going to be fine. It's going to be easy. <coughs> if you want to follow Jesus, it's going to cost you something. You get that, right? Like, generosity is costly. Just be vulnerable with you. If my family decided to keep the 15% of our salary that we give away, I'd probably have a brand new car and we go on vacation every year. It's costly. But you know what? I might not have a new car or a car at all right now, but the gospel is spreading to the four corners of the earth and there's a little girl in Kenya that gets free education and has clean water and has a chance at life because of our generosity. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's costly, but it's worth it and I don't regret a day of my life for it. Serving at City Church. Listen, it's costly. I get it. I get that it's costly. We are asking you to attend one and serve one, which means that I'm asking you to be in this building for like four hours on a Sunday. And I also understand that you have a lot of stuff going on 
you work all week long, you have sports, like this might be your only day to relax. Totally get it. We are in the throes of it. Yes, it's costly. But living the Christian life isn't about comfort. It's about building a different kind of kingdom. It is. And when you show up here early, you create space for people to meet with Jesus. Can I tell you a secret? Do you know when first-time guests show up to church? On time. Do you know when the rest of us show up to church? 25 minutes late. When you prioritize being here on time, you are present to make a difference in people's lives when they show up. See, when you arrange your life around church and you invest in a better kingdom, it's costly, but it's worth it. Did you know that people make a decision statistically on the church that they will attend within the first 10 minutes of being there? Did you know that? Here's what that tells me. The gospel, the most important thing that happens on Sunday morning is not right here. It's in the parking lot. You have the greatest impact on people's lives. When people come to sit down in, in this room, we eliminate all the distractions, right? People don't have to worry about their kids. They don't have to worry about nobody talked to them wherever they walked in. What they see is they see, man, people were here to serve me and they were ready for me. When I dropped off my kids, they knew what they were doing. Everything was set up in such a way that I could experience Jesus. And then I can yell at them for a couple minutes. They walk out of here and they know, listen, I might not believe what that guy believes, but there's something attractive about this community. Yes, it's a sacrifice, but it's one that's worth making because we're creating a space for hospitality. We create the critical moments where people's lives and the balance get to experience Jesus. So I want to unapologetically say that we are trying to be the type of church that's going to cost you something. And we are asking you to prioritize being here because we believe that serving matters. Every single one of you I want on a serving team, not because we need more people on a serving team. Well, I want you there because people matter. We're not asking you to hold a door. Listen, the doorstop does a great job of holding the door. We're asking you to hold a door because people matter. Investing in city kids matters because we come alongside parents and we invest in the next generation. And I don't know if you know this, but we're multiplying like rabbits around here. There's kids everywhere. We need your help. Being on the connection teams matter because you're creating experience for people. Having full worship teams matter because you're helping people enter into the throne room of God. All of it matters. And all of it takes commitment and sacrifice. I love this quote by Albert Schweitzer. Listen to what he says. He says, I don't know. I don't know what your destiny will be. Some of you will perhaps occupy remarkable positions. Perhaps some of you will become famous by your pens or as artists. But I know one thing. The only ones among you who will be happy are those who have sought and found how to serve. You don't serve because we need people to serve. You serve because you need to serve. You're like Jesus whenever you do that, and God fills you up with himself as you empty yourself of you, and then you actually get to experience one another. Living the Christian life means that you need to be willing to say no to a lot of stuff so that you can build God's kingdom. Or, as J.C. Ryle says it, a single day in hell will be worse than a whole life spent carrying the cross. Y'all, we need a bigger vision. We need a bigger vision. God is using you, and he's preparing you for something better. You get that. And if you are God's team, you are by default not on Satan's team, which means Satan will attack. Uh, again, I, he's going to try to convince you that you don't have the time or the space to invest here. He's going to tell you that you deserve a day off. You deserve to sleep in. He's going to tell you that God's out to get you. I'm, I've never felt like I've done a day of life. I've never felt like I've done work a day in my life whenever I enjoy what I'm doing. Find what you enjoy doing and get 
plugged in because none of, all, none of that is true. What's true is that persecution is always preparation and opportunity for growth. It's personal growth where God uses what's going on around you to shape you into a more faithful person and it's corporate growth. It's church growth. How do I know that? Did you know that literally every single time in the book of Acts, which is the descriptive book for the church in the Bible, that there's massive persecution, there's a line that follows that massive persecution, and it says this, and the church multiplied. As we walk through the good, the bad, and the ugly of life, God builds his church. When we embrace the call and the direction of the Christian life, God brings us and his church to the most amazing destination. See, God is using your life to speak the gospel to the world in ways that you will never know if your destination and direction is set towards Jesus and you bring people along with you. You are the model. You are the point. Your life matters. Your life matters. And if you will get that, and if you will plug deeply into God's kingdom, what you will see is God will do something significant in you, and it will be hard, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Ultimately, it is worth it. Jesus is worth it. See, because Jesus has already paid his price for you. At the end of it all, you don't get stuff, you get Jesus. And you don't do any of this because you're trying to earn God's faithfulness. You already have it. You already have everything you need. God already accepts you. He wants you to enjoy him forever. So let me just say this. This is the gospel. The gospel is a great exchange. And it's not for more stuff. The gospel is laying down our lives and emulating our king. The gospel is that God, God did it all already for you and you get Jesus. That he lived your perfect life. He died your death. He rose from the dead by humbling himself so that you could be exalted with your king. Listen, you have the greatest news the world needs to hear inside of you. Paul is sitting in prison awaiting his execution, and he's sitting there saying, Timothy, it's worth it. It's worth it. There's more to this life than right here and right now. There's more to this life because God first loved you. You go tell everybody everything they need to hear. It's worth it. See, our lives are a response to his redeeming love. The gospel is that Jesus has already paid your punishment for you, and by his blood, you get joy and righteousness forever. So maybe today, maybe today is the day that you just need to take off the mask for the first time and realize this, you're accepted in here, just as you are, with all your burdens, with all your stuff, because we're all jacked up too. The human experience is, no matter what you're dealing with, so is somebody else in this room. Maybe today's the day that you need to get off the sideline and you need to get in the game and recognize, yes, it's a sacrifice. Being in a small group and serving here on Sunday morning is a sacrifice. And in order for you to say yes to that, you're going to have to say no to something else. But as you do that, I promise you, God will shape your life and you will make an impact in somebody else's life in ways that you'll never, ever know. See, no matter who you are, we all need to respond because the most impactful thing that you can do with your life is to respond to the gospel and give your life, spend your life for the sake of the gospel. You will never, ever regret that. I've met a lot of people who have been on their deathbed and said, I wish I'd have done this, I wish I'd have done that with my life. I've never met a single person who got on the deathbed and said, man, I wish I'd have spent less time with Jesus and more time at work. Do the things that you'll never regret now and shape the path for people to experience Jesus, and they will.
Paul's the track record of that. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this day, for this moment with my people. I love them so much. God, I just want what you want for us. And I pray that you would help us to live out the gospel. As hard as it is, I pray that you would shape us and move us so that we can glorify you and that you would build your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven right here at City Church and in this city and around the world for your name's sake. In Jesus' name.